0: Hello, everybody who is listening, and thank you for joining another episode of the Plump Serpent podcast, the podcast about self-empowerment, well-being, and nature connection, with your host, Isabel Bloom, and my guest today, Mike Hansen. Hello, Mike, and very welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Isabel, and, and uh, thank you for inviting me to your show. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, I appreciate very much what you do please introduce yourself and tell your audience what are you doing?
1: Well, um, I just a little bit of background. I was um, made in Denmark and assembled (laughs) on the Faroe Islands in Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe and Canada, and uh, imported into the United Kingdom for a while and then imported to the United States in 2008. So I'm a I call myself a serial immigrant, and at the moment, I am uh, uh, owner, co-owner of a farm in central North Carolina called Ozark Acres, a regenerative farm, which my wife, Sue Meyer, and I started together in 2013, and we raise heritage breed cattle, heritage breed uh, geese, chickens, and turkeys, and for those that don't know, heritage breeds are uh, old-time breeds of livestock or poultry that have uh uh, been endangered because of commercial farming practices larger animal stock and that type of thing Uh, and our pride of the farm is uh, our piney woods cattle and they are they're uh, threatened with extinction and and uh, we raise right now i can see them out my window actually we've got about 20 of them on the ground and they're grazing away and the calves are playing.
0: What a wonderful view you have. And you have a, a quite unique slogan. <laughs> T- tell, tell our audience a little bit about your slogan.
1: Okay, yeah. Uh, Graze Against the Machine. It came about in several fashions, actually. Uh, f- for one, uh, I really like the band Rage Against the Machine. And that's where Graze Against the Machine actually started from. But it also kind of emanated from our practices of farming. We had a lot of well-intended and well-intentions from the likes of conventional farmers and veterinarians that came and gave us advice on how to farm uh, and how to treat our animals and We, Although it was difficult because we had very little experience farming, I had none and and Sue had very little. Um, It was difficult not to pay attention to them. We struggled mightily at times to make decisions that were best for our animals and our land. Uh, But that's basically where, where Graze Against the Machine came from because we started to see that there was... It seemed to us anyway that there was a machine behind all of the advice that we were getting that included uh, plenty of uh, pesticides and herbicides and synthetic fertilizers and, um, you know, broad, broad vaccination schemes that, uh, which is probably a little bit of a, of a uh, vaccina- vaccinations in this country anyway are a little bit of a, of a uh, controversy right now. But it seemed like people were vaccinating for everything, uh, their cattle, and we decided to take a, a little bit of a different approach and, and only do it when they needed it. And we have a small enough herd that we can keep an eye on them closely. I would think people with larger herds may be forced to, to choose to vaccinate because it's, it's difficult to keep a, an eye on, on 100 or even 50 closely enough so that you can see if they're if they have any health uh, health maladies Uh, and the real reason behind that for piney woods was they already came with a lot of disease and parasite resistance because of the way that they have been raised they were brought to the united states by spanish conquistadors in the early 1500s they were brought over from the canary islands or from southern spain actually to the canary islands and then into the caribbean and then distributed through the Southeastern United States. And they basically had to take care of themselves and, and foraged on less than ideal forages where they were. um, And they weren't, they weren't chosen by humans. um, Like some of the more commercial, large commercial breeds were for size. So they have maintained a balanced genetics, uh, which includes disease and parasite resistance. And we thought that if we started a regimen of vaccination every year, then we would not be doing the breed a favor going into the future. Um, And there are people that vaccinate. So the, the piney woods, and we need both, I believe. Uh, But our, our choice has been to, to only do it when, when required, when we had um, we had a, uh, we had a couple cows that had pink eye, and we had to treat them with antibiotics. Um, but we don't, like a lot of other people, we don't vaccinate every year for pink eye, which comes in seven different strains. Um, so you never know if you're gonna if you're gonna get get that with with all of them anyway. But that's the approach that we've taken.
0: You have anyway a very. <clears throat> A very holistic approach on your farm, as far as I've I, I see on your uh, LinkedIn posts. Uh, for all our listeners, uh, Mike Hansen is is posting regularly on LinkedIn and also on other uh, social media platforms. I, I guess um, it is really interesting. Um, you share your story, how your farm developed over the years, and and how many species. You, you can observe now over the years. And this is very the, the very core of the regenerative approach as far as, as it goes uh, to my understanding that you have really this holistic, holistic view of, of, of farming, of, uh, of the connection of the farmer to the land, of the, of the right species that are suited to the land. And to all these interconnections that are happening between plants and animals and the soil and the farmers, this is really a, um, a whole universe. You are you are living, you are enriching, and you are living there. Um, how how is how is your connection to the land, or how, how what was the intention um, when you switched fully to this? Regenerative holistic approach. You are now living on your farm. What, what was the intention, and what was the the cause to do that?
1: Well, in in uh, one word, it was cancer. Um, both my wife and my son uh, have had cancer. in uh, In the, my my wife is fifteen years in remission, and then my son is uh, coming up on twenty years. Excuse me. And during the time, especially Sue, when she and she's always been interested in nutrition and uh, and health in general, but it became even more focused after she she was diagnosed with cancer. And my son, Marcus, similarly, once he was old enough, he focused a lot on on nutrition and and food and how food could help. Um, help him and his health as well. So we had talked about starting a farm for probably 10 years and in 2013 2014 we started this place with the focus of growing the most nutritional uh, r- nutritionally rich and healthy food that we could. Sue's research found that it was very difficult to find uh, even organic, you know, food that that uh, maintained the nutritional quality, of course, it was raised uh, without any pesticides and herbicides, but uh, I think one of the things she found was that a peach that was uh, grown in nineteen fifty three you would have to eat fifty odd peaches to get the same nutritional content of one peach in nineteen fifty three in in two thousand or two thousand five I think it was so Focusing both on how the food was raised and how to improve the nutrition was a real, uh, was a real part of that. Um, And we were really starting from scratch where that was concerned. We didn't really know how to make that happen. Um, The easy part was not spraying, but the hard part was weeding and watching pests eat our crops. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But then especially the first year we had, Uh, We had a lot of tomato hornworms, which basically ate the majority of our tomato tomato crops. What we found, though, with time is as we allowed the land to recover is uh, these parasitoid wasps um, started to breed. And these parasitoid wasps actually lay their eggs inside the tomato hornworms and they feed, they basically eat the, the caterpillar alive. Um, and last year I had, I think I saw maybe four caterpillars and in comparison in the beginning, when we started here, I may have seen a dozen to two dozen. Every time I went out, every time I went out, I would have to pick them off, uh, off the plants. I have not seen one this year. Um, we didn't have as many tomato plants though. And our tomato plants did not, were not very healthy this year. I'm not sure why, maybe too much rain, but um, I think in comparison with last year, which was a good year for tomatoes, it was, it was surprising to see how much that reduction has come just for, from allowing nature to do its things. And it's not something that happens overnight, Isabel. We've <laughs> yes, had to, you know, we've time. had to be, yeah. And we've had to be, you know, we've had to watch as these things have happened. Um, but now we're seeing a balance, you know, strike itself, uh, especially on the tomato hornworms. That's the best example I have, really, because of of uh, the time um, or the first year we planted tomatoes till now. Uh, but we're starting to see other things as well with in terms of biodiversity. Uh, we have planted a lot of native species that no longer exist in this area. Uh, A lot of it was because farms would cut down uh, hedgerows Mm. and hedgerows contained a lot of variation and was also either food and or habitat for birds and other animals that they could hide underneath these hedgerows. And um, so we're trying to reestablish that with the likes of wild plums and um, pecans and I just trying to think of the other native species we have hazel we have American hazelnuts growing and um, the plums in particular sumac is another one and what we what we've done is is look at the indigenous populations and take and you know, tried to take guidance from them in North America and Mexico to some degree as well, because indigenous nations were not guided by uh, by borders. So we've looked at what were they growing successfully, what were they using for food and medicine and tools, and what was native to the the southeastern United States. Uh, looking particularly to the Cherokee nation and some of the local smaller tribes in North Carolina, the Lumbee, um, Haliwa saponi which we have a a good friend who's a member of, and take guidance from them to try to find, well, what do we need to reestablish here to grow food, to grow medicine, and to grow habitat so that we can bring back a lot of of biodiversity. Um, And we're seeing a huge increase in insect varieties now. Uh, some of it is due to, I believe, climate change. It's getting warmer here. So we're seeing some migration of insects from uh, the south of us, from Florida and Georgia. But we're also seeing species that we've never seen before. It, it, as early as last week, I, I saw a moth that we'd never seen before. Um, and that in turn brings a lot of birds because birds feed on insects as well. Yes. And as of yesterday, I checked, Isabel, just so I could tell you, I think we had verified 525 species of plants, insects, birds, uh, fungi, even mollusks, snails, crustaceans. We have um, we have found that we have crawfish, which are like a little, uh, small lobster, mm-hmm. that, that we've now found down by the stream, and this continues to you know every year we see more and more species uh, introducing themselves, and there is a there is a measure of healthy ecology is one of the measures of that is is biodiversity. So that that has been that has been a, a interesting progress to see. Uh, how that has has increased, um, in addition to that, the cattle in particular piney woods have a um, have had a huge impact on our the health of our forest. Very often when you hear about people raising cattle, you hear, well, you know they cut down trees because you have to make space for grazing well in the piney woods, because of their varied foraging, they of course eat grass, but they also eat um, a lot of invasive species that, you know, if a, if a forest is not managed, will grow like vines, uh, muscadine grapes, uh, poison ivy, kudzu, brambles, uh, greenbriar. And when we moved here, we have two pastures separated by about 15 acres of woods, and those woods were completely impenetrable. We could probably walk in about 15 feet, five meters in some places. Um, but we would come out with scratches because of all the brambles and thorns that, that come with that. And now the, the piney woods in the five years, actually going on six years they've been here, they have cleaned out the understory entirely. Um, and because some of their, they have also pulled up roots on some of these plants, what was in the canopy is starting to clear out as well. And the sunlight is now being able to pass through the canopy onto the forest floor. And we're seeing new species of of plants, native plants, that we have not seen before. Adamasco lily is one of them. Uh, Cardinal flowers we had not seen in the forest before. And I just discovered a new one um, a few weeks ago, which was a very tall, purple, beautiful flower. I can't remember the name of it now. But um, all of this is... Is occurring because the piney woods are actually managing the health and improving the health of the forest, and in turn, the forest is improving the health of the cattle because they have the, you know, the buried forage that that they that they crave and desire. So, it's a really good balance between the two. One one feeds one, and the other feeds uh, feeds the other as well.
0: Yeah, this is a very wonderful example that. Everything is in a kind of sense medicine when it is at the right place <laughs> and when it is, yeah. yeah, and when it is nourished in in the way it 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 happens or it grows or it is interconnected with other species actually. And when you talk like this, I really have this this image of a farmer of a you know like this. Um, this farmer who was really um, versatile in biology, in chemistry, in physics, in in plants, in medicine, in um, in observing the weather, in observing certain patterns. Who is really a very a very um, open observer and who is a kind of strategic in a way. Um, like he's interacting with what is happening, who is always adapting in a kind of sense. And you said um, your farm or the evolvement of your farm needed time. And in your experience, time and patience, how much are these qualities missing in today's farming and also um, also this kind of humbleness you need when you're working with nature and not against nature.
1: I think the, the humbleness is there, no matter who I speak with in terms of farming. No matter yeah. how they no matter what practices they use, I, there, is a, there is a humbleness that you have to have because farming you farm with you, you know you're farming in nature whether you decide to farm with nature or against nature, you know, that's the way I I look at it with, if you decide to spray herbicides, pesticides, et cetera, there is, there is a, you know, there's a a tendency there to fight against nature, but at the same time, a lot of farmers, I mean, they work on very, very low margins. Mm. Um, And they don't have the luxury of, of time. Um, And they also a lot of, farmers, I think, um, especially within the livestock that I, you know, that's mainly where I interact with, uh, with other farmers,
2: mm-hmm.
1: both locally and, and, uh, and nationally and globally as well is they, they have a, um, a very strong connection with the breed that they raise.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, uh, if they have raised Angus for a generation or two, it's that, you know, how, how they respond, you know, what's expected of you and, in, in your management of the herd and changing mm-hmm. that takes a long time. Mm-hmm. And I can say, even after three years of raising piney woods, I had a hard time seeing that I would raise another breed as well. So I, I think there is, there's certain amounts of that in, uh, in the equation that, uh, that are, you know, that, that prevent farmers from, from making difficult and sometimes you know, time, time, uh, uh, time critical uh, decisions, or in this mm-hmm. case, not non critical, because you have to give the the, the farm time. Um, what's What's encouraging Isabel is that I'm starting to talk and hear. Well, not I'm not bringing it up myself, but I'm starting to hear from some of my neighbors that they may not be going organic, but they tell me when they they have a season. Or a, you know, one, one cutting of hay that they didn't have to spray uh, because of invasive or you know, plants when they were cutting hay. I have an, another one, another uh, neighbor. And I, when I say neighbor out in the country, your neighbors are, are mm-hmm. five miles away. It's yes. not like right, <laughs> right next door. <laughs> but I have another neighbor who's, you know, who stopped by and asked me how would he change his cattle operation into an organic operation we're not certified organic. It's too expensive for us to do that, but we apply organic methods and regenerative, regenerative methods, and they can see our cows are healthy,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: and, and, um, and I have one, uh, one neighbor who's in his eighties, who was surprised, you know, he was over a couple of years ago in December. And when I told him we were feeding a bale of hay, a, a week to 20, 20 head of cattle um he was shocked because he was feeding his 30 head five bales of hay yeah um and part of that may be down to the fact that we only bring in organic hay which is more expensive but they seem to eat less of it mm-hmm. and if we're feeding let's say two two bales of hay for 30 you know to do a, a direct comparison with what uh, what he was doing um and they're still getting higher nutrition than they would out of a conventional, uh, a, con- a conventional bale of hay. Mm-hmm. Plus, they're not getting the the uh, remnants of whatever was sprayed. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and I told my neighbor the other day, who told me, you know, I've got one cutting. I said, well, if you go organic, we'll we'll consider buying from you as well. There's not very many hay uh, hay balers in my area mm-hmm. um, that have organic hay. I've got one gentleman, Murray Cohen, who's one of my, uh, heroes. Um, I call him, well, he calls himself the hippie farmer because he started <laughs> farming organically on uh, a few hundred acres here in North Carolina in the early seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but he's in his mid seventies once, you know, once that's over, well, uh, and I, I tell him, I keep telling him, you can't die Murray. You can't, because where are we going to get our hay from? And I, he's probably got a plan, but uh, you know, he's always busy, so we ne- we never have time to talk about that. It's uh, mainly we mainly have time to bullshit and, and and laugh a little bit and and talk about how our farms are doing. So um, that's going to be, you know, what's the next thing after Murray's mm-hmm. after Murray's gone? What where do we get our hay from? We don't have enough space to grow our own, and we definitely don't have the money to purchase the equipment to to uh to make hay as well so i don't know if that answers your question i got kind of carried away there isabel but
0: yeah yeah of course yeah so when you talk about that you have contact with with other farmers um what is the what is the topic that concerns most of the farmer? I mean, money and and income and the right payment and all this pricing and is is always uh, always an issue. But uh, what what are the other issues and how do you perceive the um, the growing courage or strength or? Um, maybe also self confidence of of the farmers that is yeah kind of of getting more visible or tangible in a way
1: hmm weather is one thing
0: mm.
1: <laughs> money money weather and uh again because i you know it's mainly livestock yes folks uh forages what to plant what to mm-hmm. seed in the for in the in the pasture mm-hmm. um which used to be a focus for us but the piney woods really i mean they will there was a lot of talk about um some kind of endophyte which i'm not quite sure what is you, you mentioned biology earlier i have to le- i've had to yes. learn a lot of this but um there, there's some kind of endophyte in the fescue grass that grows here, and you know, talking about there's this strain of fescue that doesn't have this endophyte that somebody mm-hmm. has created that you have to buy and so on and so forth. Again, for me, that has become a cog in the machine because, I mean, our cattle do just fine on the fescue that we have growing, which has that endophyte in it. And they're, they're healthy. They're, you know, mm-hmm. but a lot of people talk about what to plant in mm-hmm. the fields, um, to, you know, to, uh, encourage growth and mm-hmm. of the cattle. Um, and that can be you know, what to plant in the summer and what to plant in the winter, because some forages will only grow in the summer. It's mm-hmm. very hot in the summer in North Carolina, yes. and it can be relatively cool in the winter. So um, those are the things I hear the, the most of um, mm-hmm. and how, you know, when when to cut hay. Again, that's all down to weather and, and nutrition, but um, those are the things I see I see the most of um, management of pastures, how to rotate cattle through them. Mm-hmm. So They, you know, the, the grass can grow and they can come into one pasture and eat and then be let out into another pasture. Um, uh, and ag- again, I mean, we used to rotate our herd through the pastures. Um, yeah, it's funny you asked this question and I'm, I'm really struggling because I don't have you know, these are not questions that are on the forefront of my mind anymore. They used to be. Mm-hmm. But now that you ask about well, what what are the discussions I have, I don't I don't have very many people I can discuss, you know, how we're doing things with that do it the same way that we do, because we we take a very different approach, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I'm starting to realize now, you know, after you ask that question so rotational grazing excuse me rotational grazing which is where you block off a portion of your pasture mm-hmm. and then let it grow and let the cattle and we used to do that but um and this was sue's actually uh, sue's idea was they you know they the pastures weren't looking very good and they're supposed to do a little bit better because you know you get a, a you get a lot of animals in a small place and they mm-hmm. fertilize it and then they leave and so on, but the pastures were not looking good. Mm-hmm. And the real, the real push for, for Sue was, well, you know, they eat a variety of forages and they don't always have a access to all these forages, which includes the medicine that they eat. Mm-hmm. Um, when we rotate them through the, the paddocks. So we quit rotationally grazing, last year and just gave them open access they have about 38 acres that they have access to Um, 15 of those are are woods and the pastures this year are healthier looking and the Mm -hmm. cattle are healthier looking Mm -hmm. so you know and but everybody that I talk to talk about you know they talk about rotationally grazing Mm -hmm. so I yeah
0: yeah, but not everybody has also woods on the land, I guess.
1: Very few do, because not yes. I don't think there's a lot of I I get the feeling that their cattle do eat uh in the woods, but I mm-hmm. don't think they they thrive on what mm-hmm. is in the woods and, and um, piney woods are they just do well, you know, on on grass and and vegetation in general. Um and they they are healthier. They've never looked unhealthy, Isabel, mm-hmm. but they they just look I can see Rocky and and uh Louise and the rest of the herd from the window right now and they just look phenomenal. I mean
2: yes. They look
1: <laughs> they look like they could maybe lose <laughs> a little weight, you know. <laughs> so yeah, I,
0: when people look at the photos you're doing, then they will be amazed how beautiful your animals are. look. Yeah. they are gorgeous yeah <laughs> yes they are. they are really beautiful
1: yeah yeah it's that's uh i'm I'm sorry I can't answer that question better than that, but it it really there's there really is not very many people I can talk to about what we do because i I guess because we just do things our own way you know
0: yes and and um, how is that for you i mean we we talk about here about empowerment and when you're kind of alone with your uh, with your approach and also with your insights and maybe also yeah you you also had some sharings uh, for others how do you uh, how how do you feel about that or how do you deal with that?
1: It's very motivating for both sue and i I think because um we had the we had a lot of this is based on intuition mm. um. And a lot of it is, you know, Sue grew up on a, on a 500 acre farm in Missouri and she spent all her time outside. Hmm. She couldn't wait to get out of there. She, she uh, left when she was 17. Um, I grew up, you know, the, this, the beginning, the, the, my first remembrance of nature is in Africa. And I spent a lot of time in the mountains of Canada when we moved there. Hmm. So I, I think we, we're kind of being brought home by being here. And I think there has been a a resonance with nature that the both of us having lived in, you know, big cities like Copenhagen and Mm. around London for so many years, we kind of lost, but I think that has been reintroduced by having to work, you know, with, with the land. And, and I think there's a, there's a very, there's a deep connection, even though we've only been here seven years um, there's a connection that I have felt before both in Canada and uh in England on the old forests in England have a really i think each place has its own each uh each nature element of nature in in uh, several countries uh, England the very old and ancient um forests have a almost a wise feeling to them i can't explain it any other way
0: yes, um, yes that's wisdom yes
1: yes Quality in canada that, exactly in the mountains of canada it was very primal mm. um and one i don't know why this is coming up for me but when i graduated um from college i went backpacking in australia for three months and there was a real sense of place for me there as well which i've not had before Hmm. now i think the sense of place here is very different it's it was definitely not immediate for me sue had a real draw to this farm uh the the farmhouse had been uh, had been abandoned for 13 years and there were dead animals in it and there was the windows were busted out and the roof leaked and i mean it was a friend of ours who was in construction said tear it down and start again it'll be quicker (laughs) (laughs) um so but she kept getting drawn back to this place Mm. um even as much as feeling a physical pull to get come back Mm. and i i have not felt that until recently it's taken me a while i i felt a uh, I felt very disconnected from it, but I think having you know the the cattle, but more so the planting the native species because I have to mm-hmm. care for them. Yes, you know I have to haul water. They're they're not near a water uh, hydrant, mm-hmm. so I have to haul water to them. I have to weed them. I have to mulch them. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to make sure that the Japanese beetles that that are here for three to four weeks in June and July. That I, you know, I handpick them every morning mm-hmm. for an hour to make sure that they don't get devoured. I think that has created a, a connection more than anything, um, because I feel like I feel like that is establishing a connection for the future as well—not me, my future, but future generations that can enjoy, you know, the the fruits of the pecan trees. The pecan trees will never give us any nuts because they will be gone before, you know, before they're that Mm -hmm. age. Mm -hmm. Um, But now, you know, I can see out the other window in the office here, the two pecan trees that were planted by the people that built the cabin that was built here in 1850. Mm -hmm. They're 175 years old and they provide us with shade and they provide us with food, you know. So, I'm hoping that those pecan trees will do the same for people that are here in 175 years.
0: Yeah, you you also have this approach of the stewardship of the land, like the indigenous people had this seven generation. Um, yes. Mentality, and that that is that is really. Yeah, I think that that's that's one of these points. All farmers or all, all people who are living on this planet just uh, need to get back that we are just, yeah, we we are beings here, but we don't own own the earth. We are just right. Yeah, we are here to appreciate and nourish and and, and share with each other and also with the people who are coming after us.
1: Yeah. And- yeah, that's seventh. sorry go ahead
0: no no um
1: the seventh generation um i think you know when you are going back to the how we choose to vaccinate the piney woods well that's part of the reason why we we have to be cautious about our approach is because in 125 150 years the um the Piney Woods genetics and their disease and parasite resistance will change if we choose to vaccinate them on a regular basis. Yes. You know, and there is a risk. There is definitely a risk involved in not vaccinating, but because we have a closed herd, Hmm. you know, we don't have, we don't have people coming and going from other farms. We reduce that, reduce the, the, uh, the risk to their biosecurity quite significantly. um and so you know again i think we need both we need people that are caring for the cattle in in different ways um to ensure that it's that it's still here in 175 150 years
0: yeah and and you i i I guess you are farming on indigenous land right
1: yeah and that's actually um there was a a screening of the movie gather which i would really uh, i would really recommend that your listeners get if they can get a chance to look at i think they uh, they released it the beginning of last year or late 2019 yes, 2020
0: yeah 2020 i think have you seen it yeah i, I posted it on my linkedin account beautiful yeah, yeah it's, a, <laughs> it's really a wonderful wonderful it is- short documentary
1: it is and in the introduction uh for the screening we were at the director was there with with some of the people that were in the in the movie and that was when we realized where what land we were on they suggested looking at native-land.ca and um we found that we were on uh, scarura and tuscarora land but only the back half of the the farm the -hmm. front half of the farm had not been Um, they, they had not identified where we were in, in terms of that, but as of this year, they've now discovered that, um, the Lumbee tribe was, was on this land.
0: Mm -hmm. And it,
1: it doesn't surprise me that there's several, um, several tribes. We are near about a mile and a half, um, two and a half, three kilometers from the deep river and, there's a place down here called Buffalo Ford, which was the only natural place to cross the, uh, the deep river from for 30 miles, 50 kilometers mm-hmm. North and South. So it would have been a, you know, a, a, uh, a place where a lot of people mm-hmm. pass through. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found a lot of, of, uh, indigenous artifacts, um, arrowheads, axe heads, Uh, on the land which we're we're still trying to work out how and what those artifacts are where they need to go I guess Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of artifacts have been separated from their homeland Mm. Um, so is that the right thing to do we need to we need to work with the indigenous communities that Mm. you know that are nearby to to discover what that is Uh, Mm -hmm. they're certainly not they're certainly not for the Ozark Acres <laughs> Museum, so to speak. They're they're not mm. ours to keep because they have such important cultural significance to uh, to the the communities of of indigenous peoples that that uh, surround us. Mm.
0: And you mentioned that oh, people always forget that the indigenous people not not all tribes, but some tribes they they were really farming the land.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: Um. And in your uh, perception, how important is, is it that they share their experience or that they're uh, recognized for their skills they have?
1: Very much so. I, I think that uh, I think when it really comes down to it, regenerative farming is an indigenous practice, um, whether you're in, in the mountains of Switzerland or in North Carolina there are local and indigenous practices that have been held for, you know, for centuries. Um, and that, and we need to get back to focusing on, on those, a lot of the farming practices that, that we have in America are European based. Yes. Um, and you know, my interpretation of farming when I started farming was based on that, but I've come to a recognition that, um, hunter hunter gatherers well they had to have you know they they had to have food every season so Mm -hmm. the farming that they did to manage um to manage nut trees or fruit trees or grasses to make basketry actually made the environment healthier uh not just for for their sake but the environment in in general things were more fruitful and hunting hunting as well not taking too much out of the environment again that's part of you know that's part of a farming process how do you improve the environment to make sure that deer or elk are still coming through um and that you know that is a that is a farming practice Mm -hmm. Um, so including that into our definition has definitely expanded our um our focus and probably made it more holistic because now when we talk about uh, planting our native uh, our native species of shrubs and
2: mm-hmm.
1: trees and flowers, we're not just focusing on food. We're focusing on medicine. Um, we're focusing on what we broadly call tools, um, and that can be anything from uh, making bows to furniture out of the wood that's grown in, in the trees that, you know, that were selectively chosen by indigenous communities as well. Um, And habitat for insects and birds and, and mammals as well. So making that distinction and including that in our, our definition, I think has made it more of a, has made it easier to focus on what we need to do. Let me put it that way. I don't, I think it was a bit it was a bit haphazard before, um, but there's definitely some values in indigenous communities that we can all learn from and and uh, and benefit from immensely. And I, you know, I I have to thank my friend Linwood um, for everything that he's done in terms of guidance. And Linwood is very humble and will always say that this is from. Is his interpretation of what comes from the elders, uh, but he has he has really helped Sue and I kind of understand, appreciate, and respect so much of what indigenous communities uh, have to offer and and to learn and to to teach us.
0: Yes, yeah, so no, yeah. go yeah.
1: Ahead.
0: And there is there is also much to heal there, and it is interesting that. For me, um, like people from the West or, or people from from a different culture, come to the land and bring bring the people back to the roots, or encourage them to to go back to the roots or strengthen their roots, and both both uh, profit from each other, and both can learn from each other. Isn't that wonderful?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's it, as an immigrant, it's um. I've always been rootless, because I, you know, mm. by the time I was eight years old, we had lived in four countries, mm. and I remember my um, my schoolmates in Canada saying I was from Denmark, and I had only lived there for nine months out of my, you know, <laughs> life. i had lived in, I was yeah. like, no, I'm from I'm <laughs> from Rhodesia, and they didn't know where that was, and yeah, you know, so so having a connection having a connection with culture in, in particular. And I, I think that is one element of, that we don't, that of, uh, of indigenous society that we, we must and have to, um, w- there's nothing we can do or not, there's nothing I can do to enhance the, the cultural importance of, of the plants that we grow here for indigenous communities. I can plant them. But the culture around them, and the culture that is is ingrained in indigenous communities around a plant and the uses of that plant, whether it be in ceremony or food, you know, I I would like to learn about that. But that culture is very personal and, and yes. is is a a very uh, is generational. Um, mm. And I I hope that what we start to build here becomes something that indigenous communities can make better and make their own with with time
0: yes it's but that's for me it's it's really it's a it's a very encouraging story especially yours you know all this trauma that the indigenous people had had to go through uh, f- from the historical point of view, and and now people come back and and appreciate what is there, and and mm, also help in a kind of way to also heal this trauma. And that's for me that's that's really a, a very encouraging encouraging part of of your story, because you.
1: Yeah, You also that yeah go ahead, sorry.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You yeah, I always make pauses, you know, because I have to think because English is not my native language. So (laughs) I have (laughs) to think before I speak. Sometimes yeah, it's it it's it it goes faster. (laughs) It goes faster with (laughs) speaking than thinking. Um yeah, it's it's like yeah, it's 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 this rooting and I mean I I I'm also I'm, I'm I'm a person who is who is not really rooted and um, it's this cultural thing we we need to acknowledge also this deep connection to the land and and this this richness um, and yeah we can just we can just give a platform that this can grow again but as you said all this wisdom doses this uh, overgenerational knowledge and, and in it's, it's in their cells, literally it's, it's really in their cells. um, So that this can grow again. And yeah, I I think for, for a lot of people, it's the time to just give the platform that this can grow again. And we, we have our skills and we have our approach and uh, why can't we just um, share that, and so so that both both parts or both worlds or however however you want to call it can um, yeah can can grow together and can can nourish each other. So
1: yeah, and I I think there is a, there's a lot of reticence on part of the indigenous communities to share because they have you know they've seen how. Uh, how things that have been shared in the past have been appropriated by you know the likes of me, and that I'm very cautious about that because I don't want to be you know I, that that's not that's not my intention. My intention is to learn um, humbly and mm. and be guided when and you know when the communities that I i seem uh, i look to uh, feel that that i deserve that and i don't believe mm. that i deserve that yet i i think mm. there's a lot more a lot more work to be done around around that area um and i would you know i would love to learn more um but at the same time i would like to learn a lot more about my scandinavian you know viking heritage and <laughs> i think that's an that's an important blending of cultures that I need to bring here. And I, I, guess the, the biggest thing, you know, one of the, one of the things that, uh, that Linwood spoke of early on, uh, in our friendship was reciprocity and mm-hmm. what, what the, uh, the plants and animals do for us and what we do for, for, uh, the plants and animals. Some are really, for me, uh, that has been a, a discovery that I've had to learn. Some things are relatively easy to uh, to identify, um, like watering the new, you know, the little yes. ones, uh, mm-hmm. all the all the trees and plants, and weeding them, and so on. But some are are a bit more. Hmm, what's the word? Well, let me give you an example. So we have black walnuts. Mm-hmm growing on the property. And they're different from the walnuts in Europe. They, um, very different flavor and the, the shells are extremely hard. You have Mm to, you, you have to crack them with a, with a hammer basically. And I was one, uh, I think it was last winter. I was trying to figure out, well, what can I do for the pecan trees? Because the pecan trees are sorry, the walnut trees. The walnut trees also provide medicine for the piney woods. Mm-hmm. The walnuts have, uh, the walnut trees have uh, jugulone in them, which is mm-hmm. a, a natural anti-parasitic. And I've, both Sue and I have witnessed the piney woods go to a black walnut tree and eat the leaves or eat the mm-hmm. branches and eat the bark. And we think they do that when they may have some parasites mm-hmm. and they eat that to, to get rid of it. Um just speculation we don't know, but that's they don't eat it all the time. So it, it seems mm-hmm. like that might be the case. And I was trying to figure out a way, well, what how do I reciprocate the the black walnuts? Because they they do seem to just give. Mm-hmm. Um, but what can I give them in return? And um and this was not a conscious effort, it wasn't until after after I had done this I realized, and with Blinwood's guidance again. Um, that it was a a gift to the to the walnuts Um, i had cut the walnuts and sanded them and they're they have a beautiful very kind of viking-esque scandinavian pattern on the inside (laughs) and i had braided them into a piece of leather and um and that was you know on, on afterthought, that was my rest, my respect for the tree was using it for something beautiful, Mm -hmm. uh, a design and my art that I could, uh, that I could honor the tree by doing that as well, which is again, something that, you know, I've never really thought of as, as being a, uh, a respectful or honorable thing to -hmm. provide back to the, to the trees. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, you know, the beautification of that was, uh, was very meaningful. And it also brought, because it looked like Viking, uh, mm-hmm. art on the inside, it brought my Scandinavian heritage together with, <laughs> you know, the indigenous principles of, of, uh, of reciprocity that, that occur locally. And, and that, I think that's probably why it was so men- memorable because of those two things being brought together.
0: Yes, that's really wonderful. Yeah, appreciation and and attention. Mm. That's really wonderful. <laughs> wow. Um. So, uh, your last words do Do you have a Do you have a vision?
1: No. <laughs> I don't really have a vision. That's it. That's mm-hmm. uh.
0: So you're you're more into into being in the flow with the with the land, so oh, with was happening around you and within you. You
1: yeah yeah yeah. I mean, I you know, I think the I would love to make uh make a living full time doing farming. Right now, we we do other things to you know make ends meet. Mm-hmm. Um, that's difficult. I and I. I'm always exploring different ways of, of making that happen. Um, but I think it will, it will take time to get there. Mm-hmm. Initially we had hoped to be there within five years. We're now seven years, six years into farming. So it will be, it'll take, it'll take more time. It's not, uh, it's not something I think of on a daily basis. Um, The I mean the vision uh, but I guess really what it comes down to is the vision is provided to me by you know my the surrounding nature and the Hmm. animals and and it kind of guides me you know I don't I don't try to force myself on it and I try to be more a part of it and try to find what my responsibility is in it and I I suppose that's really the, the vision that I have is, is continuing to learn about what my responsibilities are and will be in the future for, uh, for maintaining this beautiful, you know, this beautiful piece of land that we're on, um, and doing so humbly, you know, and I, you know, you, your question early on about what farmers is there, the, the humbleness of nature, it's there for all of us, uh, it's just there for you know in in different uh different guises and and different levels of uh respect i suppose really when it comes right down to it to for nature to do the right thing because if left to its if left to its own devices nature uh nature can can be uh very helpful and healthy but it can also be very destructive you know and and i think finding how human beings and how me how i as a human being uh can help strike that balance is is uh is my you know that's my that's my aim that's my that's my my uh my purpose i guess yeah
0: that's wonderful thank you very much um, and where where can people get in touch with you? How can people reach you?
1: Well, the get, good place to start is ozarkacres.com, our website. Um, there's a lot of resources on there. Uh, we've started to share a lot of... Um, it, it's, it's taken a while. For example, the food and medicine forest. It took us two and a half years to put together a document that at a very high level outlines how you might be able to grow your own food and medicine, no matter if you've got a small postage stamp or, you know, you've got a few acres to grow on. Uh, We've also identified the, uh, the plants, both the we call them immigrant plants because they're not all native. We got immigrant plants and native growing plants in the food forest and what their, uh, what their uses were, by indigenous uh indigenous communities uh for food and medicine and uh and tools and also the benefits that they have for for example for pollinators or food for wildlife as well Um, that's taken us about two and a half years to put that document together and we talked about whether we should charge for it and somehow uh but I I think in the end we we felt it was much more important to share that information with a broader community to, um, and then look at other ways to to increase our uh, our revenue on the farm. And there's so that that if you sign up for our newsletter, um, you'll get a link to download that with a password. And um, there's also a lot of information about the piney woods um, and resources for teachers. There's coloring pages for kids and. And uh, videos that we've done over the years as well. So that's that's a good place to start. If you'd like to connect with me uh, personally, LinkedIn is a good place. Um, we don't do as much on Facebook and Instagram as we used to. It's just uh, there's a lot of work to do the, um, the social media part. And um, LinkedIn is probably where I do most of my posting. Wonderful.
0: Yeah thank you very much for you for your insights and sharing your personal story and yeah also you are very um, very humble and and kind of very you have oh you have this kind of very uh, down to earth and very calm atmosphere. It's really it was really <laughs> lovely to talk to talk to you.
1: Well, thank you, Isabel. And I, you know, it's interesting. I I wasn't sure what to expect, but I uh, you've you've raised some some questions. I think that for myself, that will that I can take away and think about the the vision thing. I thought I think I was not expecting that and. And uh, vision and, and mission and all that type of thing from a corporate perspective is, is one thing, but I think there, it, it takes a very different form when you're working as part of nature. I, I had not yes. thought of that before. Yes. So thank you for asking it's some very insightful and, and uh, probing questions. I really enjoyed that.
0: Thank you, and enjoyed it. I enjoyed it too, <laughs> and I really appreciate very much what you do. It is really wonderful. You're well, you're really a gift. A thank gift you so to the much. World.
1: That's, that's, re- <laughs> that's very nice of you to say. Yeah, thank <laughs> I'm you. I'm sure there's a lot of people that would disagree with you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's al- it's always kind of subjective.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Thanks for joining us this week on the Plumped Serpent podcast. When you like this show, you can leave a message on our anchor site, share this podcast, or simply tell a friend about it. You might also become a member on my Patreon site, Plumped Serpent, where I offer you some valuable bonus content to deepen your connection with nature and yourself. And I appreciate when you tune in next week for our next episode. May the magic of the plump serpent be with you